This week, Hexion, Vanguard Natural Resources, and South Cross Energy Partners file for Chapter 11 in Busy Week for new bankruptcies. Jones Energy and SunGuard prepare prepack filings. Monotronics enters grace period after skipping coupon payment. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we each week bring you the latest top developments in high yield and distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Long, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelding. Later, Reorg America's Deputy Managing Editor and Senior Legal Analyst Angelo Thalassinos sits down with Fabian Caruso of Kramer Levin, John Williams of Millbank, and Mark New, Senior Counsel at ISDA Americas. They'll discuss CDS and the recent proposed amendments to the ISDA definitions seeking to address issues relating to narrowly tailored credit events. It's Sunday, April 7th. Hexion, a Columbus, Ohio-based maker of resins and coatings, filed for Chapter 11 in Delaware on Monday last with a restructuring support agreement in hand. During the first-day hearing on Tuesday, Judge Kevin Gross granted all first-day relief sought by the debtors, including interim approval of dip financing. Andrew Parlin of Latham & Watkins, counsel to the debtors, said that as of the hearing, approximately 75% of note holders overall had signed on to the RSA, including more than 70% of the first liens, 100% of the 1.5 liens, and 80% of the unsecured board and debentures. In their first day papers submitted April 1st, the debtors had indicated that as of the Chapter 11 filing, quote, 62% of the first lien notes, 98% of the 1.5 lien notes, 84% of the second lien notes, and 76% of the board and debentures had signed on to the RSA. Parlin called the debtors, quote, creative dip financing, the, quote, foundation of this restructuring, and described the related cash management relief as the plumbing through which certain of the requested dip funds would flow. The interim dip order authorized the debtors to access $250 million under the $350 million dip ABL, including the deemed issuance of existing outstanding letters of credit for working capital purposes and the full $350 million available under the dip term loan to, among other things, repay borrowings under the debtors' pre-petition ABL. The dip financing bears interest at L plus 200 basis points to L plus 250 basis points for the ABL and L plus 300 basis points for the term loan and matures the earlier of 18 months post-petition or the effective date of a confirmed plan of reorganization. The U.S. trustee will hold a formation meeting for an official committee of unsecured creditors on April 10th. Also, a second-day hearing has been scheduled for May 1st at 2 p.m. Eastern. Houston-based ENP Vanguard Natural Resources filed for bankruptcy protection with $950 million in funded debt, a mere 20 months after emerging from its previous Chapter 11 cases. Quote, I understand that the Vanguard One plan was predicated on various assumptions that ultimately did not materialize, CEO R. Scott Sloan wrote in his first-day declaration, referring to the restructuring completed in August 2017. Specifically, he said, many assumptions regarding commodity prices and basin differentials, the pace and volume of divestments, and the expected return on various capital investments, quote, have failed to come to full fruition and have challenged the debtor's liquidity over the past 18 months. 
Sloan said that although no deal has been reached at this time, the debtors and other key parties have, quote, made progress, as reflected in a non-binding restructuring term sheet attached to the first day declaration and described there as a second lien proposal. Vanguard has received commitments for a $130 million dip facility that contemplates $65 million in new money, including $20 million that became immediately available upon the bankruptcy court's interim approval at the first day hearing on Monday. $65 million of the dip facility will roll up obligations in respect of revolving loans under the company's existing credit agreement upon final dip approval. According to the dip motion, the pre-petition first lien agent on behalf of a majority of the first lien lenders has consented to priming liens securing the dip facility. And the second lien note holders are also deemed to consent to the priming liens under the intercreditor agreement. A second day hearing for non-dip motions is scheduled for April 24th, and the final dip and cash collateral hearing is set for, for April 30th. South Cross Energy Partners, a Dallas-based provider of midstream natural gas services with total funded debt of $529 million, filed for Chapter 11 protection in Delaware on Monday. In a press release, the debtors said they intend to use their structuring, quote, to evaluate a range of options that would include a sale of the business, the divestiture of certain assets, or a standalone restructuring plan. In his first-day declaration, South Cross CFO Michael Howe explained that the company intends to run a first-round marketing process in the first 50 days of the bankruptcy for substantially all of its assets, quote, after which it, in consultation with its pre-petition and post-petition lenders, will determine whether to proceed further towards a sale under Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code to proceed toward a sale pursuant to a Chapter 11 plan or to solicit votes for a Chapter 11 plan. The company seeks $255 million in dip financing to be funded by a 12-member ad hoc group of the debtor's pre-petition term lenders, including Solus Alternative Asset Management LP and Soundpoint Capital Management LP, under a secured super-priority term loan and letter of credit facility consisting of new money term loans in an aggregate principal amount of up to $72.5 million, letter of credit term loans in an aggregate principal amount up to $55 million, and roll-up term loans, which the debtors say would be subject and subordinate to the DIP term loans and DIP LC loans to refinance dollar-for-dollar pre-petition term loans held by the DIP lenders in the aggregate amount of $127.5 million. The company's requested first-day relief was granted by Judge Mary Walrath on Tuesday. South Cross returns to court on May 7th for a second-day hearing in the case. So that was the latest news in a trifecta of new Chapter 11 cases from the past few days, but Reorg also covered some major pre-bankruptcy developments this week. Jones Energy on Thursday disclosed a pre-packaged plan of reorganization and disclosure statement under an RSA that it's signed by 84% in principal amount of the company's first lien and unsecured notes. The pre-packed plan would equitize all pre-petition notes. Jones said it intends to file for Chapter 11 in the, in the Southern District of Texas by April 15th. SunGuard Availability Services said that it will file a prepackaged Chapter 11 on or around May 1st with a plan that would hand 89% of reorganized equity to credit agreement claims. 
And Reorg learned that Monotronic skipped its April 1st coupon and entered into a 30-day grace period, coupled with a waiver from credit facility revolving loan lenders and a forbearance from credit facility term lenders, as the company aims to reach a consensual restructuring agreement. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, the head of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority and the main advisor to the ad hoc group of PREPA bondholders said that they are, quote, on the cusp of a deal to restructure the electric utility's legacy debt, while PROMISA board member David Skeel reiterated his belief that a plan to restructure the Commonwealth's debt will be undertaken this year. The remarks by PREPA Executive Director Jose Ortiz and Stephen Spencer, Managing Director for Houlihan Loki, the PREPA bondholder group's main advisor, were made during a forum called Puerto Rico at a Crossroads, Investing in the Future, sponsored by the Wharton School of Business that took place in San Juan last weekend. Neither Ortiz nor Spencer discussed the details of the debt negotiations, but Ortiz said that securitizing the debt would require a transition charge of $0.03 or $0.04 per kilowatt hour. Early in the week, Governor Ricardo Rosselló and President Donald Trump clashed on Twitter with the president accusing island political leaders of mismanaging federal funds. In response to the president's assertion that Puerto Rico has received $91 billion in federal recovery funds, the governor asked the president to, quote, stop spreading misinformation because FEMA has approved just $300 million, not $91 billion, in permanent works projects. The war of words between the president and island political leaders is unfolding as disaster legislation for Puerto Rico failed to advance in the U.S. Senate, with Democrats pressing for more funding for the island, according to several reports. On Tuesday, the ad hoc group of GO bondholders filed an omnibus conditional objection that seeks to disallow claims asserted by the Commonwealth on account of the Commonwealth's obligations under leases with the Puerto Rico Public Buildings Authority, or PBA and the Commonwealth's guarantee of bonds issued by the PBA. The objection takes issue with the claim objection previously filed by the Oversight Board and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors as under-inclusive. The ad hoc group of bondholders says that the earlier objection, quote, selectively targets $6 billion in GO bonds issued by the Commonwealth in 2012 and 2014. The conditional objection also challenges as many as 16 series of GO bonds and PBA bonds, which total about $4.371 billion in face amount that were not subject to the earlier objection. On Thursday, the PROMISA Oversight Board filed a motion seeking approval of a stipulation between the Commonwealth and the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority, or HTA. Under the agreement, the deadline by which avoidance actions filed by the Commonwealth and the HTA against one another would be told by 270 days from the date on which the statute of limitations would have expired without the stipulation in place. The filing comes after the Promisa Oversight Board moved to equitably toll the deadline to bring avoidance and recovery actions related to payments on certain bonds issued by the Commonwealth, the Employees Retirement System, and the PBA. The motion asked the court to extend by 90 days the May 2nd and May 20th deadlines for the Commonwealth and ERS, respectively, to litigate avoidance actions under the bankruptcy code. Other top red stories of the week were PG&E announces new CEO appointment of refreshed board of directors. Capri moves to intervene in PetSmart SDNY litigation. Acosta secured debt recovery slightly limited by non-guarantors. Estimated recovery range of 39.3% to 78.4%, with general unsecured creditors at 
2.2 to 7% recovery. And now, here's what we're looking forward to in the week ahead. Don't worry, Jim Holloway will be back next week. For the week, we'll be watching for any update from California Governor Gavin Newsom, who promised a comprehensive strategy on PG&E within 60 days of February 12th. That was his first State of the State address. The clock is ticking. On Monday, CTI Foods will be back in Delaware for their second day hearing. Seedrill's tender offer for its 12% senior secured notes also expired on Monday. And what would a week be without earnings? PetSmart will hold a call on fourth quarter results on Tuesday after results are released on Monday. Also on Tuesday, PG&E will be in court for an omnibus hearing asking for approval of its short-term incentive plan, among other items. Management was shaken up last week when the company appointed Bill Johnson, its new CEO, and said it would appoint 10 new directors to the board. First Energy has an omnibus hearing scheduled, but we'll be keeping track of all hearings in that case, big or small, following Judge Kostrick's surprise rejection of the debtor's disclosure statement over third-party releases. In response, CEO John Judge said, quote, Working with our advisors, we have already initiated actions to address the court's ruling and will submit a new request to have the disclosure statement approved in a timely manner, he said in a press release. So here at Reorg, we're waiting for that. Wednesday, PG&E is back again, this time for their motion requesting a preliminary injunction against FERC, seeking to enforce the automatic stay as to the FERC proceedings, any entity's attempts to enforce FERC's January 25th order, and any action by FERC or others that would attempt to nullify or impede the bankruptcy court's exclusive authority over the debtor's requests to assume or reject executory contracts. Westmoreland is scheduled to have an evidentiary hearing in the adversary proceeding over the Kemmerer mine sale. We also have tender deadlines for Endo's offer for its 2022 and 2023 notes and for Tesla's tender for Maxwell shares, which expires at midnight, though that one has already been extended a couple of times. On Thursday, Rite Aid will report fourth quarter results. Walgreens last week warned of weakening results, causing a lot of pharmacy companies to get hit then, so we'll see what Rite Aid has to say. Back in court, Ditech has a disclosure statement hearing. Lastly, on Friday, we will see an auction for the Aceto Debtors Chemical Plus business. A new Mountain Capital affiliate is acting as the stalking horse bidder, with a bid of $338 million in cash, plus the assumption of certain liabilities. That's all for this Sunday. As I said earlier, Jim will be back next Sunday. Thanks. Thanks, Connor. And now here's Angelo with Fabian, John, and Mark to discuss recent proposed amendments to the ISDA credit derivatives definitions. Well, thanks everyone. So I'm here today building off Reorg's Q1 panel on CDS, engineer defaults, and exotic transactions. And today we're joined by three professionals at the forefront of credit derivatives to discuss the recent proposed amendments to the ISDA definitions, seeking to address issues relating to narrowly tailored credit events. Uh, we will assume some familiarity with underlying issues, and we also urge our listeners to take a look at intelligence published by Reorg on March 7th and March 18th. Joining me today, Angelo Thalassinos, Deputy Managing Editor, Reorg Americas, is Fabian Caruzzo, John Williams, and Mark New. Fabian is the Derivatives and Structured Products Group Head at Kramer Levin and was recently part of the ISDA external review process tied to Sears CDS. John is the head of the Derivatives Practice at Millbank and advised the ISDA Improvement Committee in the development of the proposed amendments we'll be discussing today. Mark is Senior Counsel for the Americas at ISDA with a particular focus on credit derivatives. Thank you all for joining us. 
Thank you. Thanks. A little bit of a disclaimer, and uh, before we start our conversation today, anything we discuss here is not intended to and does not reflect a view of or position taken by any of our respective participants' organizations. Any views or positions discussed are those of that particular individual, unless stated otherwise. So why don't we get started? Mark, I'm going to turn to you first. Why don't you start us off with how the ISDA working group came together and talk a bit about the two proposed amendments announced in early March. Sure, thanks, Angelo. So the, this project started off really some time ago. Uh, there were statements published by ISDA's board um, and uh, by the CFTC in uh, sort of the beginning of the uh, second quarter of last year. Uh, and in particular, the ISDA statement from, from the ISDA board uh, expressed concern about what we called narrowly tailored credit events. Um, these events also referred to as manufactured events. Um, but we use the term narrowly tailored credit events because what we identified as the real concern was not the fact that these events are intentional, but it's the fact that they are structured in such a way that you can have an event that has very little impact on a borrower in the cash credit markets, um, but has a very significant impact on CDS because it results in CDS contracts settling and making substantial payments. So it, it was that gap between the uh, cash market and the CDS market that really raised concerns. And the concerns were that this would damage the efficiency, the reliability, and the fairness of the overall CDS market. So it was something that um, you know we took very seriously. Um, the board had asked us, as the as the staff, to consult with market participants on whether further amendments could be made to our ISDA credit derivative definitions that could address these narrowly tailored events, and uh, that was what really kind of got us started on our on our working group. Um, as I think everyone knows, there was the, the Hovnanian transaction that was uh, in flight during that time. Uh, and once that finished, uh, we were able to set up the working group and, and start discussions. And just like, in case people don't know this already, the way ISDA working groups operate is, uh, let, let's say we want to make a change to you know, one of our definitional booklets in response to market practice changes. Um, we have a number of uh, working groups made up of our member firms, and we will set up, you know, regular calls with those groups, uh, discuss drafts, uh, kind of figure out a consensus position with a working group, and then typically, you know, publish the results of that for some kind of consultation uh, before finalizing and then implementing changes. And so this followed a very similar process. We have uh, a group called our Credit Steering Committee, which is made up of our most active uh, credit market participant members. And that group would typically form a kind of sub-working group to focus on any documentation changes. And that's exactly what we did in this case, a very similar process to what we did you know, when we updated the, is the credit definitions in 2014. Um, but one thing that was a bit different in this case was that we had heard from um, you know, a, a number of buy-side firms in the market who had already given this quite a bit of thought and actually come up with some um, suggestions for changes to the definitions that should be considered. 
And so we, we added some additional firms uh, who, who had expressed interest to, to, to work on those changes. And Mark, at least from the early March announcement, it seems that the working group's work is, is still in process, but um, can, you, can you talk to us a little bit about what are those two proposed amendments that did come out in early March? Absolutely. So the, the main proposal, I would say, is relating to uh, the failure to pay credit event. And this was a huge focus coming out of the Hovnanian uh, event. And the concern was that a payment failure could be structured in such a way that has very little impact on the company, uh, either because it's quickly cured or the the payment failure is made to a very limited class of creditors who are unlikely to take any action against the company, Um, but the general creditors are unaffected. Um, So we spend a lot of time focusing on the failure to pay definition itself. And where we landed um, was um, adding this additional requirement for a failure to pay credit event to result from or in a deterioration in creditworthiness or financial condition of the reference entity. Um, I'm sure we'll go into some of those details more as we go through this conversation. Uh, but the, the basic idea here was that um, whilst we couldn't really pin down exactly how a narrowly tailored credit event might be structured, uh, one of the key links in all of the narrowly tailored events that we've seen is that the payment failure itself doesn't result from deterioration in creditworthiness. There's something else going on, some kind of structuring that leads to that payment failure. And so uh, we picked on that as being the kind of defining feature. Um, What's really new with this proposal is the inclusion of a a guidance note that gives some guidance to the determinations committees and market participants on how to interpret this requirement in the failure to pay context. And that uh, gave us the opportunity to identify some of the elements of narrowly tailored events that we've seen in the past. uh, And as a result, also kind of give guidance on the type of structures that, um, you know, members thought should not cause uh, a CDS to settle. Um, The other proposal is a really, I think, just a clarification to the way the outstanding principal balance definition works. the purpose of that clarification was was to say that um, bankruptcy rules that can reduce the size of a claim um, should be applied to determine the outstanding principal balance of a bond for CDS purposes, even if the reference entity is not currently in bankruptcy. Okay. Um, so we, we, we can go back to both of those later on, I think. Yeah, and I'll um, sort of... Uh, the conversation, I'll, I'll just generally mention it as the credit deterioration requirement um, as we discuss it here today. And I'm going to turn to, to Fabian. Um, does that proposed requirement um, and change in the amendments, um, does it go far enough um, in order to sort of disincentivize some of the transactions we've seen in the past? So what, what I'd like to say at the outset, I've been an active outside observer of the work done by the working group, keeping abreast of what was going in in there by the various market participants. So I'm going to try to be constructively critical just to promote a little bit the, the, con- the conversation among, among us. Um, so there's clearly a perception from, um, I'd say, the wider market that the issue needs to be addressed just after Havnanian. 
Um, and I'm saying the issue because it's not uh, per se the contract. I mean, the contract creates the issue, but the issue could have been addressed by regulators stepping in. Um, which they did not do, and many market participants don't want the regulators to get involved with the process. Uh, my sense is that the regulators don't really have the law on their side to bring an enforcement action in those cases. And we may disagree on that because obviously there's no case law touching on this particular issue. Um, and the SEC even less so than the CFTC, and that might be one of the reasons why the CFTC was more vocal in Hovnanian than the SEC. Um, now, um, we, 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 we decided, or the market decided that um, there could be a fix uh, for uh, the issue through the contract. Um, and it's sort of a one-time opportunity that the market has to um, fix the contract. And so the issue is that uh, when you're looking at the failure to pay a credit event, you're, you're looking at a very clear-cut event that's even more clear-cut than the bankruptcy to some extent. If some of you remember what happened in TXU and a balance sheet bankruptcy that was argued by a market participant that could give rise to certain issues, failure to pay is even clearer than that. And we, with the proposal, would be migrating over to a situation where it no longer becomes predictable. Um, and uh, the uncertainty is needed because that serves as a deterrent uh, for market participants to uh, engage in, so in those sort of activities. Uh, but then, you know, the uncertainty is not good for predictability and, you know, I'm sure John will agree when we advise market participants on outcome, on potential outcome, uh, people always ask us to make uh, predictability determinations. <laughs> it's very difficult to advise on certain issues because the rules are clear, but the DC exercises a fair amount of discretion. Uh, and we've seen it uh, in recent events uh, where you've seen a fair amount of activity in the market. Um, you know, I can mention Sears, like for the challenge of the deliverable obligations where a number of market participants made submissions to the DC in that respect that are not always welcome by the DC. Um, but but you could you could you could see uh, you know that that uh, that activism playing 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 out uh, in 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 those names recently, um, and so with this proposal we'd be giving more discretion to the DC, um, and the indicators that are set forth in the guidance are helpful, but to some extent they're relatively vague. Um, and I'm not saying that the proposal should not be adopted just because of that. The only thing I'm saying is that there's uncertainty out there and lack of predictability. And the question, e the question is, have we not created another issue for the DC that's going to create its own problems down the road when the DC will have to make determinations? And I can point out to a few, a few of those uncertainty-related issues in the proposal, but one of them, for instance, is that there is a presumption, there should be a presumption that um, there is a creditworthiness deterioration if there's not um, enough um, eligible information indicating otherwise. Uh, but 
if you look at the guidance, the guidance used the word may, which means that the DC may make that presumptions, but doesn't have to make a presumption. Mm -hmm. Just right there, it creates some uncertainty because it's not clear. Yeah, let, let's dive into those, those, those two things exactly. Um, the subjectivity and then eligible information uh, to the determinations committee. And, and, and John, uh, I'm gonna turn to you. Um, sort of what are your thoughts on that sort of now sort of instilled subjectivity mm -hmm. in, in the right. definitions? Um, so I, actually, I, I very much agree with the way Fabian framed uh, the balance here. Um, this is a, uh, it's, a, it's important for people to realize um, if you step back a little bit from the CDS product and think about uh, credit overall, um, <clears throat> that the way that the determinations committee works and the way the CDS contract works because of the determinations committee is a unique structure. Um, it is a really f quite detailed uh, system of private contractual ordering. Uh, it is not um, uh, regulated by one central entity that owns the product in the way that like um, a uh, stock exchange or a, a, a futures market would be run where there's one entity that would make hard determinations, nor is it uh, reliant on uh, a governmental or regulator process. Um, so that's unique. And I think actually over the course of its history, which is not all that long, of course it was set up about 10 years ago. Um, uh, in fact, Mark, this might be the 10 year anniversary of the go live of Big Bang, I just realized, um, or maybe that's next week. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, so, so the, the uh, 10 year anniversary of the DC is an opportunity to look at, at how well it's operated. And in the context of other credit disputes, the DC uh, and this private contractual ordering structure has delivered uh, rapid determinations that I think mostly people in the market, in, including Fabian and myself, would think are the right answers. Although I also completely agree with Fabian that along the way there are times when um, uncertainty creeps into the product. And um, in a sense, we are to some extent victims of our own high expectations, which we've continued to set for the product and for ourselves in this space because actually this mechanism has worked pretty well over time. But that being said, it does not mean that every time we change it or we give a little bit more discretion to the DC or we change the rules that that can't be improved further. It always can be. And so I think you're right to point out this, you know, this uh, additional subjectivity creates uh, the potential for questions to arise in a way that will be unsatisfying to sophisticated market participants who are, after all, putting a lot of money to work on one or another uh, analytical hypothesis, right? And it's important to be able to analyze things precisely in the credit markets and, and believe that you can get a precise outcome. But to your question, Angelo, I think the subjectivity here at, at the end of the day, um, uh, the, certainly the buy side group that we represented who developed some of the ideas at the beginning that Mark described was initially disposed uh, against adding more discretion to the DC for the reasons you bring up, Fabian. And after a lot of discussion about the various different pros and cons of different specific ideas, 
you know, rule-based changes that could be made versus introducing, introducing some subjectivity. Um, even the very sophisticated buy-side uh, participants who are not on the DC, who would care a lot about that, ended up deciding that on the whole, uh, it was better to create some subjectivity here because that was the key disincentive to, um, to, to pursuing and putting money to work, which of course is what happened in the Hovnanian trade, um, uh, to change, to, to radically change the incentives of a reference entity in a way that normal credit analysis cannot predict. So that's what people are concerned about, about being able to use the product. So um, I think on the whole, it's a, it's a fine balancing exercise, definitely not perfect. And obviously this guidance note pro approach is unusual in its detail, um, in, its, uh, in its attempt to describe ahead of time how the DC might behave. Um, and I think our, a lot of the role of the buy side firms in the committee was to, um, if anything, you know, push for more, more disclosure, more detail in the guidance note to, to deal with the issue you're describing. Probably not a perfect outcome yet, but that's what we were shooting for. And so the, in, and so under the proposed amendments, um, the, the defined term is eligible information, uh, and it lists, um, pros and, uh, and, and cons in order to look at this. Um, practically, how would the DC receive that information market participants? And are there sort of problem areas that you all can envision already at this point, potentially? Well, let me, let me start by answering then see what you think, Fabian. The, the, uh, it's certainly possible, you know, when you're writing these rules and thinking about how you might structure this, you obviously can sit and realize that it would be, if you, if you create the rules this way, theoretically, it's easy for um, uh, sophisticated players to uh, undertake activities that are not disclosed, not write them down, not include them in things that would become eligible information, i.e. public information, information that can be shared publicly. Um, and therefore, have you sort of the question arises, have you completely failed to achieve your your, your objective because this will just go underground? And we talked about that a lot, actually, both in the separate buy-side group and in the larger working group. And I think we felt, and I certainly do feel myself, having advised people in the market you know, over the years, that the institutions who are going to uh, uh, participate in the CDS market are... Um, you know, to some extent or another regulated, right? It's not just a matter of whether the SEC can step in on enforcement action, but in general, they're regulated institutions, which means they have compliance structures. And, you know, we're not talking about people, um, you know, managing things out of an abandoned garage in, you know, Schenectady or something. I mean, this is, the, so in other words, for any one of these ideas, you've got to go through a process of going to some kind of investment committee. So you've got to talk to your investors. You've got to talk to somebody else about why is this a reasonable thing to do? And if under this, under the old system, it, it was correct to say, look, the rules say this, the rules say we can do this. Um, and, uh, and you could get advice from Fabian or from me about whether the law says you can't do it. And I would agree with Fabian and say, no, that doesn't say that. Um, and so, you know, in the old system, you could go to that investment committee meeting and you could convince people that you are the smartest guy in the room and that this will work and that nobody is telling you it's not appropriate. Under the new system, under this proposal, it's clear that that is 
not there's a very good chance that's not going to work and there's a bit of, there's a principle here that you have to contend with and so if you if the person then says well it's okay boss cuz we can just do this on the sly and it won't be in the eligible information that's going to be the end of the conversation, right? So, the, this is still a an, an environment of um, of players who uh, behave according to institutional norms and regulation, and um, they, that it it doesn't work. Therefore, to just sort of do everything on the sly. And, and I would agree with John that this is clearly going to serve as a deterrent. There's no question about that. And the investment committee process that John described is exactly right. People want to have certainty of outcomes because they provide cheap financing in those situations. Uh, and so they take a hit on that cheap financing. So they need to make sure that their certainty of outcome uh, for the CDS contract in those cases, uh, we, which was clearly a, the case uh, in, in Hovnanian. Um, now, the, the problem again is that, yes, this proposal will achieve uh, the deterrent effect. The question is, does it go a little too far in terms of creating that uncertainty? And can we do something and I'm sure it's been debated at length uh, within the working group to uh, remove some of that uncertainty. And to answer your question about information, um, and, and, and in the context of uncertainty, if you look at CODER, for instance, um, the guidance provides that breaking the basis trade is not per se something that is bad and mm -hmm. could be indicative of uh, credit uh, worthiness deterioration. And my understanding is that that was a factor in CODER. Uh, it wasn't really disclosed that way, but I can very much see a situation where I could put CODER exactly on the line mm -hmm. in that respect. Yeah, so essentially in CODER, if there had been some disclosure around the fact that the market participant who was behind that trade was also trying to remove the basis traders to be able to engage the company into a negotiation around the restructuring or refinancing of their debt. Um, the fact that it was clearly viewed as a stressed, if not already a distressed credit. And, and that question is also not specifically addressed by the proposal because obviously we want the DC to have a little bit more of discretion, but what is, at which point do you become stressed? At which point do you become distressed? In the loan trading market, there are clear rules about which documentation is used when you mm -hmm. go from stressed to distressed. But here, obviously, there's no clear rule about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm just raising all those points because I think market participants need to be aware that they are trading uh, uncertainty versus deterrent in, in this particular case. And Mark, what, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I think, first of all, I mean, these are all exactly the kind of discussions we've been having for many months in our group, and they, they're, they're difficult issues. And, um, you know, the thing we've learned is that any, any change here involves trade-offs. And, you know, the, the, there are benefits, obviously, from um, trying to uh, disincentivize the creation of these narrowly tailored events. But, but they do have costs in terms of, um, you know, greater uncertainty. But I, I think it's really important to, um, to, to be able to evaluate those costs, to really put this in, in context. Um, and, you know, because I think as, as credit people, 
we always jump to the edge case. You know, we're always kind of minds are whirring and thinking about well, what's the situation in which this could could uh, could cost me a lot of money. But when we're designing the product, I think we also have to kind of start from, you know, what's the typical use case of this product, um, and you know, our approach is very much to try to make sure that. Um, the, the typical use of the product would work without really any additional uncertainty. So the way I try to explain it is I think where we're going for is for you know, the kind of payment failures we see in the CDS world for the, the reference entities that trade in CDS, uh, you know, typically if a company is failing to pay, it's because you know, it, it sort of reached or, or near the end of its ability to refinance its debt. Um, and we, so we typically see large payment failures um, but actually, you know, failure to pay is not a particularly common credit event in the CDS world um, to start with. Um, but when we do see them, uh, tend to be, be large failures that, you know, very clearly the result of deterioration in creditworthiness. So we don't actually anticipate that for the kind of, you know, quote unquote normal payment failure, this really would any this really would uh, add any significant um, uncertainty. Um, so I think we're really already into the, the edge cases of the failure to pay, which is itself a kind of unusual credit event. But if if you are into the into the situation where there are some factors to indicate this isn't the normal kind of um, uh, payment failure, there's something else going on here. Uh, there's something that, that you know the DC or the external review panel should be looking at more closely. Um, this approach kind of gives the DC the tools to do that, and that's obviously important because that disincentivizes the creation of these narrowly tailored events in the first place. Um, I, I think if you're in that zone of something unusual going on, that there's like any other rule change, right? There's, there's clearer and less clear um, scenarios. Uh, so, you know, you have something like a Hovnanian, it, it probably ticks, it ticks all of the factors to suggest that this would not be the deterioration in creditworthiness as the cause and therefore not be a credit event. Um, but of course you could have something that is, is a less clear-cut case and that, that's like any other uh, change I think in, um, in, in the definitions. But, but I, I do think that the kind of the clear-cut cases that we've seen um, that cause such concern would be clearly knocked out by these uh, changes and therefore we actually think the result will be those are very unlikely to reoccur. So, you know, I, I don't personally know exactly what what could be on the on the cusp of, you know, the, the the edge of uncertainty with respect to these changes. But we actually don't expect it to be these narrowly tailored events because this these changes are probably sufficient to disincentivize their creation in the first place. Um, I just want to make one other point while I have the uh, have the floor. Um, I think you know, Fabian mentioned the, the, the regulators, and I would just add that you know, the regulatory community has certainly been very interested in, in what we've been doing here. Uh, we've been briefing regulators in, in the US and the UK, and we've heard from regulators globally that this is uh, an area of focus for them. So uh, e even though we haven't seen, obviously, any kind of uh, public enforcement actions being taken, um, it is definitely an area of interest to regulators and something I think they're paying close attention to. That's interesting. Yeah, just, Fabian? Just on the regulators, Mark, do, do you think, uh, what do you think their reaction would be if, for whatever reason, the responses to the proposal are not very positive and 
this proposal doesn't go ahead? I mean, I can't speak for them, obviously, but we we have, um, you know, we have we have brief regulators, and the you know, I, th I think there is um, a strong desire in the regulatory community that uh, the you know, that there's an industry solution for this issue, um, and this uh, this set of changes um, you know, addresses that that issue. So I, I think if you know. We're obviously look, looking for feedback on the proposals, uh, and the feedback we've had, I have to say, has been uh, generally positive. I think a lot of people uh, see exactly the trade-offs that we're talking about, but also see um, why the, the benefits of disincentivizing these narrowly tailored events outweighs the, the cost of the uh, additional uncertainty in these unusual edge cases. So, you know, I think there has been positive feedback, and I think it would be Obviously, I think it would be a, a very disappointing outcome if it didn't have the sufficient support to go through. So, so that's a good segue, uh, Mark. What are sort of now that the pros amendments are out there? Um, what are the next steps? Uh, is there feedback still rolling in? Um, and and then where do we go after that? Yeah. So we um, we actually extended the deadline for feedback on the proposal in response to um, requests. Uh, so actually, the proposal is now open for feedback until April 10th, so, um, Wednesday of uh, well, Wednesday, April 10th. Um, we we have started to receive uh, you know some some feedback. I had a few um, uh, useful sets of comment letters, which is great, and you know we encourage everyone to review this closely because it is certainly new, and uh, to provide feedback. We'll obviously be reviewing that once we get past the. Um, Past the deadline for comments, and if we, you know, if we get changes that we think we can make to the proposal to make it stronger, then we'll be taking those back to the working group and, you know, seeing if we should make uh, changes to the language that we put out there. Um, but once that process is done, um, the, the next step will be to put together um, the the actual um, protocol changes that people will need to sign up to. Um, and then implement that by way of protocol. That requires um, CDS market participants to to sign up positively to make the changes to their uh, legacy trades, as well as um, making these changes for trades going forward. Um, and so that will be another kind of um, you know education effort to, uh, to to explain how this works and, and to get people to sign up to the protocol. So that, that's why it's so important that we get the feedback now at this proposal stage um, on on issues that people want us to look at further. Um, I, I don't have um, timing for you on the um, protocol at the moment, that, that there are a number of practical considerations around when the adherence period is, um, you know, whether any of the industry infrastructures need to be updated um, to reflect the changes. And we won't be able to turn, to turn those definitively until we're you know, we're out with the final document, but we are looking to you know to make these changes as soon as we can, and we're looking to push this forward uh, expeditiously. No, that's great. That's great information uh, for our listeners. I'm sure everyone uh, will will continue to stay uh, stay tuned. Uh, I want to thank you, Mark and, and Fabian and John, for uh, joining us on this week's podcast, and uh, and thank you to all our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. 
As always, you can find all Rare podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Karen Luck.